<laughs> God damn it. Okay, so we're going to talk about a few things. Welcome, folks, for joining us. This is our Kids Asleep, episode number 12. And what are we going to talk about today? We had three topics at hand. First topic is a short story by Richard Preston called Capturing the Unicorn. The second topic is Schitt's Creek. And number three is a, a special throwback. But let's yep. start Let's start with Richard Preston. Fill me in on this man because I'm illiterate. Okay, so Richard Preston is an author. Um, he writes, generally he writes like scientific fiction. He wrote, he, he wrote The Hot Zone, which is like the big book mm-hmm. that he's very famous for. Yeah. Um, and it's about the, the imagining of what would happen if there was an Ebola outbreak in the United States. It's very popular. It's been made into several versions of movies and there's going to be a new version of it actually on National Geographic in like May. Nice. Which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> but the book the, the the story I read recently by him was a book was within a book of a collection of short stories that he mm. wrote. And the book's about 10 10 or 15 years old now, but it's the, the there were several stories in that book, but the one that really stood out to me was the story called Capturing the Unicorn. And what's what's this all about? So the story that he's telling is the the story of this tapestry, this French tapestry called mm. The Hunt of the Unicorn. Yeah. And it's a series of tapestries illustrating a group of hunters um, chasing and eventually capturing a unicorn. And then the last panel is the unicorn penned in under like mm-hmm. a tree and it's like there's speculation that it's bloody although some people say it could be like the fruit dripping from the tree that it's the, like the red on the unicorn but essentially it looks like the unicorn has been injured okay and is penned in and captured yeah. um but it's it's like a like a comic strip where it's kind it, of yeah or a storyboard it's, where it's telling yeah the, the tale back then the people didn't read so the only way they knew stories was through pictures just uh-huh. like the church or that's, orally yeah, or orally yeah. that's why they had like stained glass windows in churches to tell bible stories so is this um about the time of the middle ages or yeah 1500 1500s okay yeah um and it it was a it was one of the most intricate um tapestries that has ever been recovered from that mm-hmm. time period and essentially like the the tapestries hung in this very wealthy family's home for like a generation mm-hmm. and then the french revolution happened and their house was looted and all their stuff was stolen, including the tapestry. And so the tapestry went missing for, like, I want to say, like, 100 years or 50 years. Mm. And then eventually the family, the descendants of the people who had owned the tapestry, put out sort of a call of, like, if anyone in this area has these tapestries, we would give you a reward for returning them. You know, no one would be in trouble. Uh-huh. And so these peasants... Came out of the woodwork and were like, "We have your tapestries," and and they had been using them for like. <laughs> this made me laugh so hard. I don't know why this made me laugh so hard. They had been using them to like cover their like produce in the winter. <laughs> like these really like, like mother, the potatoes are cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were covering like potatoes and stuff, Aww. and so they gave them back and. So this family was in possession of these tapestries again. And then way, way later in, like, 1930, the Mm. Rockefellers bought them Mm. and had them for a while. And then eventually they donated them to 
I want to say they donated them to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Eventually, mm. they ended up in the Met's possession. Okay. I don't remember the exact, the exact uh, like subsequent like how it happened, but yeah. eventually the the Met had them, and so the Met began the process of restoring them because obviously they're like 500 years old, yeah, and they haven't been really. They've been they've been sort of like in storage for a long time, mm. and so they start restoring them. Around what time are do are they going to restore it? What what's the time period at this uh, point? Is it the nineties? Yeah, the like early nineties. Okay. Yeah, or late nineties. Late late nineties. Okay. So they begin the process of restoring them, and in that process, they have flipped them over onto their onto the front so that the back is exposed. Okay. And there's like a like a cloth on the back of each of them because that's how they've hung. Uh-huh. That's how they were hung. Was like they had like a protective backing. So the the backing is like brittle and it's old and brown and gross. So they decide to remove the backing and they literally remove it thread by thread. So they're like pulling out each thread along the edge of each of these tapestries. I believe there's five of them. Wow. And as they're removing them and they, they pull off the backing, they realize that the back of the tapestry is an exact mirror image of the image on the front, just Mm. with different colors. Mm. And that essentially the back of this tapestry hasn't been seen in 500 years. Wow. And it's preserved the colors, right? It's almost perfectly preserved because it's been completely protected from sun and the elements. They sort of like get together and they like cannot believe they're seeing this 500-year-old tapestry that looks brand new from the back. And they sort of have this idea that the museum director actually had the idea that we need to preserve this the back of this because essentially i mean they were going to they were going to put a new back on each of them and hang them that was yeah. the, that was the point and he was like we need to photograph this for posterity i mean it could be another 100 years before the backs of these tapestries it might change yeah it could change completely. and and it just it it won't be the same the next time probably mm-hmm. so they tasked the museum these these restorers with photographing the back of the tapestry so they bring in like this team of photographers. They set up like this scaffolding system over the <laughs> over the um the tapestry. And how big are the tapestries? They're they're huge. Really? Like I, I don't know exactly the measurements, but they're they're large. They're not small tapestries. Mm. And so they set up like this scaffolding over over them. And they have like this <laughs> This like crane sort of, but it's like skateboard wheels, and they like use it to like move the camera across to to photograph to it get, in chunks. Yeah, the the sections. Yeah, and so they they work for weeks to photo. It takes like two weeks to photograph them all. Mm. And when they're done, they have all this raw data, and they're like, okay, we need to start stitching them together to make a full image. And this is ni- like nineties, so the right the before the Photoshop uh, stitching method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very like they just don't have the technology we do today, <laughs> even twenty years ago. So they realize quickly that that there's an issue. Mm. The files are too big. It's killing computers left it's and right. It's killing computers. They can't stitch them together. It's too intricate. Mm. So. They decide to call these two brothers called the Chudnovsky brothers. So in this book, this collection of short stories, the very first story mm-hmm. is about the Chudnovsky brothers and how in their pursuit of pi. So they, the story is essentially they build a supercomputer and they're trying to calculate pi mm-hmm. 
to the most decimal places that has ever been done. That's their whole goal in life. The, the Met decides to give them a call because they know they have a computer that might be able to do what mm. they're trying to do. Mm. So they, give, they bring them in. They tell them what they need to do. And they say, okay, we need all the data. So they give them two huge Met bags, like the <laughs> gift shop bags <laughs> yeah, full yeah. of discs. Of just data, like photographic data. Oh, and he's like, okay, I'll take these home and I'll see what we can do. <laughs> or to his lab, I should say. Hmm. And so he takes them home on the subway. As a funny side note, he stops on the way home or on the way to his lab at the grocery store because he needs produce. He gets home and he realizes he only has one bag. Like, fuck. He left the bag. My data. <laughs> he thought he left it on the subway. Turns out he had left it at the grocery oh. store under the lettuce. So he went back and got it and it was fine. Oh, geez. But he almost lost half that tapestry. Oh, <laughs> they would have had to completely re-photograph it. Them. Yeah. So um, the end of the story is essentially them working to to feed all the data into their computer. And their computer is so powerful hmm. that... And it, it takes a long time. They it takes months for them of to processing to, and, yeah, and and, and like crunching the numbers, whatever that means, mm -hmm. to get the data to fit together. And essentially, what they realized is that the reason it's not working is because there each photo is not perfect. So they would take a photo of one segment, and then let's say they wait five minutes in between photos. Mm. In that five minutes, not having touched the tapestry at all, just from the air and the temperature and just the atmosphere, mm. the, ta the tapestry would have moved just infinitesimally, enough that the photos do not exactly match. Oh, wow. So, you know, the fibers twist a little bit or they all because of the the invisible variables. Just, yeah, the, the variables that we, that we can't, can't really account and for. that you can't control. Yeah. Like there was a, an instance where it was clear that one of the photographs, the light was weird. And they realized that at that exact moment that the photo was taken, a door had opened mm. off the room and it had like a flash of fluorescent light had contaminated <laughs> that photo, and so it didn't look like yeah, the other one. So the ones. balance was off. The balance yeah. was off. And so they it, it literally takes them months and months and months to get the photo stitched together. And, mm. I mean, the only people who were capable of doing it at that point in time were these two mathematicians who had this pie computing supercomputer. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and eventually they were able to to put the photo together and and now the met has that Jeez. that that record of that which is silly because now uh, any desktop computer would be able to do it with a do Adobe you think Lightroom. so well it depends on on the the amount of data that mm -hmm. we're talking about but if we're looking at discs just like two duffel bags worth of discs if it's like 750 megabytes per cd mm -hmm. and they have like 200 cds it's it's possible yeah. you know it'd be It'd be terabytes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to figure that, that out. In that time period, like, it, it would make sense that it would be hundreds of CDs. Yeah. 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 It's just so funny how, well, you know, like, of course, the, you know, the Chunovsky brothers were like, 
in 10 years, the computer in our apartment will fit in your pocket. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they knew that. They, they, they the had the future. They had the foresight to realize, like, this is going to get smaller and easier. But yeah. for right now, this is what we have to do. <laughs> so we'll, we'll contend with that. Yeah. But. And I just, that story has stuck with me. I've, I I finished the yeah. book a few days ago, and I'm I'm still thinking about and it. And you you were talking to me about it as you were reading it here mm-hmm. in the living room. But what is it that struck you, or that, or is it the images that are sticking with you, or just the overall message of the piece, or the way it was written? I think it's just the um, the idea that something so you know it's a 500 year old tapestry that was just sitting in obscurity mm. in someone's you know, back room for mm-hmm. years. And the fact that they discovered something new about it mm-hmm. that hadn't been seen in as long as the tapestry has been around yeah. was incredible to me. Yeah. The fact that they took off the back and they were like, this looks like it hasn't been touched mm-hmm. because it hadn't. Yeah. And it might, have, it, do you think it might have something to do with our affinity for time capsules and, and looking back with these rose tinted glasses, but then in, in certain special situations, we have these moments of discovery where you're gifted something from the past mm-hmm. and you're like, holy shit, this is time travel. Yeah. This is as good as it's going to get to having that time machine. Yeah, I think so. And the story, I didn't really go into it too much, but the story really does a really good job of giving the context of the tapestry and what those, what those people who, who made it, had to do. I mean, they probably, it probably took a year or two to do each tapestry. Wow. And they only worked by daylight because if they worked by candlelight at night, the colors would be off. <laughs> so they were only able to work during the daylight hours. So it just, you know, and, and it, it's the most intricate and most expertly woven tapestry that's ever been discovered. Like, they were saying that even the the craftsmanship is extraordinary compared mm. to other tapestries that have been, you know, that have been discovered. Yeah, because you said they were very popular at that time. There's yeah. that kind of uh, of, of showcase pieces, mm-hmm. right? That yeah, tapest- tell a story. And, yeah, and- tapestries were very common at that time, um, just as like a decoration as art. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, they just said this is an extraordinary piece. Like this isn't just yeah. your average uh, art from that time period. It was done in an extraordinary yeah. way. And so it looks like there there were a couple of things happening at once, or mainly two things. You have the story of these these items themselves, the journey, the serendipitous journey that they took all the way into the present mm-hmm. and to come into the limelight. And then you have that journey of the... Um, the restoration. The restoration of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And that just, I, I guess... You know, you have to kind of read it to to get the full story of it, but you get a sense from what you're telling me that it really highlights just, I don't know, I don't want to say mundane because it's not mundane, but something that that is just as normal as, as any old thing would become such a prized mm-hmm. possession yeah. down the road. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really interesting story. And there were, I mean, that book was full of interesting stories, but that one really... Really stuck out to stuck me. Stuck with you. Yeah. And would you recommend that? I would, yeah. I think the the story, the book itself is uh, is a great read. And that, that story, that story was actually also published in The New Yorker about 
15 years ago. So, Yeah, and from reading about Richard Preston, he's been around quite a bit, and, and he mainly does nonfiction. Is that correct? He's- yeah. Um, I would I – would, the hot zone is scientific fiction. Mm. It's – a lot of it is based in reality, but the actual plot is fictitious. Mm. Um, so he really did go to a level four hot zone, like a biohazard lab in Washington, D.C. Oh, cool. And he really like went in those labs and talked to those scientists and experienced what it's like to work in that environment mm-hmm. and to talk to people who work for that branch of the government, for the CDC. Um, so even if so, he's working in fiction, he he wants to get it right. Here. Yeah, and even his characters are based on real people. Yeah, just the story of the outbreak is what's fictitious. That's incredible. Um, but these stories are are nonfiction. Yeah, and they have here on Wikipedia notable works. They have the Hot Zone, the Cobra Event, and the Demon in the Freezer. Mm. That sounds like a very interesting title. So I'm going to click on that and see what that's all about. <laughs> uh, it's a 2002 nonfiction book. Um, on the biological weapon agents, smallpox and anthrax and how the American government develops defensive measures against them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's wow. the demon in the freezer. The demon in the freezer. Oh, because of the samples that are kept. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It's good Sounds stuff. scary. And that's right up your alley too, because oh, we're going to have to bring up another segment of, uh, uh, well, I guess this, this is part of our, our catastrophe series. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. We have to get into Outbreak, into Contagion, mm-hmm. into a lot of these Ooh, movies yeah. that really Contagious. influenced you and have made you the morbid individual <laughs> that you are now. <laughs> Guys, my History Day project, my senior year of high school, was on the first outbreak of Ebola, the first recorded outbreak of Ebola in Africa in the 70s. <laughs> You're crazy. So, yeah. It's kind of my lane. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to live in that all cozy there was also a great story about Ebola in Panic at Level Four. Yeah, it was called the the Blood Kiss, which is as oh. morbid as it sounds. Yeah, just in case you want to ramp up your uh, anxiety mm-hmm. and your paranoia, give it a shot. Try it out. Try it out. Well, I think that was a that was a good recommendation. So, are we going to tink to that? Yeah, let's tink to that. Let's to Richard Preston. Thank you, sir. So next item on the agenda, we had uh, a show that we've been watching mm. that uh, was taken us by surprise, as things always do. I'm never looking at the, for the right things. You know, <laughs> I realize that I, I just kind of leave it up to you to kind of find something for us well, I to watch. I didn't just stumble on this one. My my mom, my parents have been recommending this show for I, for a while. They've been telling <laughs> us we should watch it. And so finally... Um, finally, we got two. Uh, it's called Shits Creek. And Great that's, name. That's spelled S C H I T T S. On Netflix. Yeah. I love the name. I think I'm just yeah. a sucker for puns. It's great. It's what happens when you become a dad. You immediately, that, that part of your brain just engages and it takes up about 50% of your brain. The pun lobe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is manifest. <laughs> yeah, it's a great show. It's, um, it was created by Eugene Levy and his son Dan Levy. Mm and it has so Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are the parents and then and Dan Le- Levy and her name is I want to say Alexis Emil- Alexis something no that's her name in the show i think it's Emily Hampshire is oh. the sister no i thought that was the other girl 
Oh. The girl at the hotel. But anyway, just to give to give you guys a rundown, they are a very, very rich family who completely relied on their accountant to do their taxes and their, their legal stuff. But it turns out that their tax guy has completely been evading He wasn't taxes. paying He wasn't taxes. paying taxes, plain and simple. <laughs> he wasn't doing his job. So a long time ago, as a gag, Eugene Levy's character bought a town so that he could get the deed to a small town. And it turns out that is the only asset that has not been tarnished by this horrible shit show of, of tax problems. So that is the only recourse they have. They have to move to this, this, uh, small town and they have to pick up the pieces of their, their horrible life mm-hmm. now as, as poor people yeah. trying to <laughs> and so stay it's out just of jail. Like hilarity ensues them, you know, these really like ultra wealthy people in this really like crap town. Yeah. <laughs> And I love I love seeing Eugene Levy some, playing something that's slightly out of his lane. You know, I think he's he's playing something because he he's always kind of like the sweet dad. Yeah. You know, or or yeah, or like sort of like the bumbling. Yeah. Like a bumbling yeah. patriarchal figure, and right. in this one he seems much more put together, and yeah. like he's very author like authoritarian and like <laughs> yeah. Uh, straightforward which is nice there's there's a lot of surprises but one of the things that i noticed right off the bat was that you still get a sense of his humor because he's he's known he's established that kind of persona for so long that it it sort of feels like like as you were saying a while back of the uh the christopher guest documentaries Mm -hmm. it has that same aura yeah and at the same time it i don't want to say this in the wrong way but it feels like the edges are curved Mm. You know, it's it's not like a like a prickly show. It's not the kind of show that the kind of comes at you like what am I trying to say? Like hard and fast, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really a pleasant show to watch. Yeah, it's not crude. Yeah, I mean, it has moments, but it, mm-hmm. overall, the the quality of it is not mm-hmm. is not too uh, abrasive. Yeah, which I kind of like. It's it's easy watching. Yeah, and it's not. I wouldn't say that it's um, that it's always laugh out loud funny, mm-hmm. but just the situations that they find themselves like. There's an episode where their doors are suddenly missing. Um, the, <laughs> they're they're staying in this like shitty hotel or motel, I should say, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they piss off the owner or the mayor of the town, yeah. and their doors are missing. What's his name, Chris? Uh... Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott, who is he's pretty so hilarious funny. and yeah. disgusting yeah, in that he's show. Pretty gross. Yeah. So it's just like these silly situations that they find themselves in yeah. because and, and that's the thing. It's not always funny, but it's always interesting. Yeah, it's intriguing, and yeah. we're watching the show, and it's less about laughing and more about what how they're going to get out of their yeah. their deal. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of nice to like watch a comedy that isn't necessarily just a comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, his son is hilarious. I like, I, I think he's. Really he might good. be my favorite character yeah. between he's, him and the girl, the front desk girl, Stevie. Yeah. She's pretty funny. They have good chemistry, and and I bet you they're going to work towards something where they're going to come together. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I liked. Uh, I it's fun to see Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy like back together again. Yeah, like playing opposite one another because Long they're history. they're just they're so great in those Christopher <laughs> Guest movies and like. She is so over the top in this show. It's so great. Yeah, she's very dramatic, and and she's a, I guess a, a recovering actress. She, yeah, yeah, she's had a history of the show, and and a lot of people in the town are following her around because they they recognize they her. recognize her from her soap opera days or yeah. whatever it was. And uh, I think she's. I love her. Yeah, I think she's great. <laughs> 
And just like this, uh, this isn't really giving anything away because it happens in the first five minutes of the first episode. But that first scene where the FBI, I think it's, or the IRS is like ransacking uh-huh. their house, yeah. just confiscating everything, <laughs> yeah, everything. of value. <laughs> and they're just like shoving things into their, uh, into their suitcases. <laughs> just- and, you know, they show up in this town to this town in like couture outfits and, yeah. you know, wear like dressed to the nines. And yeah. And there's, there's something like, I keep coming back to this. There's something so wholesome about it. Yeah. Where I just like, I root for them, even though they're not, even though they're terrible, they, yeah, you yeah. root for them. Um, it's it's reminds me kind of like of the feeling that I got with The Office, where it was just it was easy to get into, mm-hmm. easy to fall into that world and mm-hmm. just kind of follow them along. I kind of feel the same way about this show that I do about Arrested Development. Like the Bluths are like this horrible dysfunctional family, yeah. but the whole time that's you a more, that's a you better, you yeah, want them comparison. to like be successful, like even like stupid Job and his Aztec tomb, <laughs> like you want them to be successful even though they're constantly like their own worst enemies. Yeah, I just think there's something like uh, very um, uplifting about that. I don't know. Right, right. They're learning lessons on the way, like mm-hmm. slowly but surely, they're getting out of that that uh entitled shell and yeah and you you start to see that i mean we're on like the f- sixth episode or something and yeah you're kind of starting starting to see that a little bit like they're mm-hmm. sort of especially like the the kids the younger the younger people in their family are starting to branch out a little bit and yeah and where where in the beginning they didn't really care about anyone around them right now they're looking for the approval of some of the individuals in yeah. town and they want to be part of that little community like yeah they're already even if it's place. even if it's for their own selfish reasons. Like yeah, the yeah. daughter wanting to just you know party and because she has with that guy and hook up the... and hook up with the hot like farm guy <laughs> that she's doing community service with. Um, but you just reminded me we should totally do a show about Arrested Development. Mm, yeah, um, why haven't we talked about that yet? I, you know, we'll get to it. Uh, I think we should watch the new season though, mm. and then we'll we'll get back to that. Can we just start from the beginning and watch? I think so. All I the think way through. That's doable. We'll get there soon. But Shit's Creek has been a pretty awesome show. Yeah, I want to keep watching it. What do you think? I think I'm going to... I decide on a tink. What do you decide? Yeah, for sure. Let's tink that. Shit's Creek deserves tink that a tink. Shit. To that shit. Thank you. What do you think about throwbacks? Is it... Do you like to dwell on the past like me? To some degree. Some degree. Yeah. You're not moping in the corner like me listening to your old CDs. I do that. I do that, but not mopingly. <laughs> You're like, Jaime, what are you doing? I'm sulking. Leave me alone. I'm channeling 14-year-old me. Yeah. I'm, I'm over that. But really, it's fun to look back on some of the great things that uh, formed your personality or just the cool things that you used to listen to or watch and enjoy. Uh, so we're going to start a little throwback series because it's fun to talk about shit that we loved. Mm-hmm. The reason um, I wanted to get that going was because we stumbled upon a playlist. Well, we don't stumble upon anything because the algorithm knows us so well <laughs> that it's just going to say, Jaime, here's some shit that you might like that we know you're going to like. The Spotify algorithm fed you this playlist. I was, was force fed <laughs> the greatest hits of the 90s, alternative 90s in particular. Oh, no. It was, it was acoustic. alternative acoustic 90s yeah, yeah, yeah. playlist. And they had such great hits as, uh, what was it? Uh, Counting Crows, uh-huh. Mr. Jones, Seal, Kissed by a Rose. 
uh, Tori Amos, a whole bunch, like a slew of like one after the other, just really awesome songs. The Cranberries. It was just too much. I, I was really transported to. It was overwhelming. Yeah. I was telling Maddie that when, when I used to get home from middle school, I can't remember if I would just walk home or if my sister would give me a ride. I would just sit and watch MTV too, and they would have the shows on heavy rotation, or I would flip over to VH1 and they would have pop-up video mm-hmm. where they would have some of the music from the 80s. But when they had like their their countdowns, they would play all of those songs. Mm-hmm. Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah. Remember Iris? Yeah. I, um, I, the, the, see, the memories I have of these, of this music isn't necessarily visual. It's auditory because we lived in California until the late, late nineties and you spend 80% of your time in the car in California. So we listened to the radio a lot Mm. and, you know, it was just, it was all just nineties alternative rock all the time. But it's good stuff, man. Good stuff. Yeah, it's a um, lot of a lot of good stuff. But we we couldn't help but make fun of uh, the lead singer of Counting Crows. I was <laughs> like, I look at Maddie sometimes, and I'm like, how the fuck did this band ever ever make it? I yeah. mean, they have good songs, but like, he's just yeah, la 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 yeah. You know, it's just like, what is going on? What is going on with this guy? Yeah, it's definitely not their best song, but it's definitely the most famous. But you didn't like accidentally in love. No. <laughs> God, that song's terrible. It's great. It's so heartwarming. Mm-mm. I like Colorblind from the Cruel Intentions soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The saucy shit. Is this a good song? <laughs> I don't even, like, Like I told you, I, I don't Cruel, think I've seen that movie. Cruel Intentions was the crux of many 15-year-old girl sexual awakenings. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one, though. That's a good <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Catholics don't have <laughs> sexual awakenings. <laughs> what is that? That awoke everyone's like incest fantasies because oh Jesus Christ, Ryan Philippe and um, uh, Buffy, oh, Sarah, Sarah Michelle Geller. Yeah, they play step siblings. Oh God! And there's a saucy minute where she's like promising to like bone him if he does his thing, and like yeah. Wow. So, okay, on the flip side, you know how I learned about that movie? By watching Not Another Teen Movie because oh. they were making fun of Oh, yeah, of they made movie. fun of the kissing scene. And I was like, oh, Jesus. I it, think, isn't Cruel Intentions... It's an adaptation. Of Dangerous Liaisons, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I also watched that movie when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> it was French. Yeah. Let's see. Cruel Intentions, 1999. Yep. The American teen romantic drama film directed by Roger Kumble, starring, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Philippe, Reese Witherspoon, and Selma Blair. Reese Witherspoon. That was when they met. Oh, yeah? They were married when for they, a Oh, while. that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, How much time has passed? So the Cruel Intentions soundtrack, like, I clicked over to that, and man, that is just a gold mine of <laughs> 90s music. Let's see. Let's take Some a look at that ones. soundtrack. It has the Verve, mm. Bittersweet Symphony. Okay. That's a good one. I'm going to take a look at the soundtrack. Yeah. Cruel Intention soundtrack. It just had its 20th anniversary. They like re-released it in theaters, which I thought was a little over the top. But <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that good, you guys. <laughs> all right. All right. No celebration. Yeah. Every You, Every Me, Praise You by Fatboy Slim. Coffee and TV by Blur. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Now I'm, I'm. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. Sorry, Spotify is loading. It's taking a bit. <laughs> Coffee and TV. Bedroom dancing by day one. I don't even know what that is. Mm. Oh, there's colorblind by the Counting Crows. Ooh, Marcy Playground. Mm-hmm. This love by. Oh, this is a soundtrack. I think. Ooh, and Amy Mann. If you could make a killing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I, I know that feel right there. Um, but I also, I was like, so I was telling you, I think Kurland, if you were to watch it now, it would not have aged well. Yeah. I don't think you would. It wouldn't ha- I mean, you're also not a girl, so I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it wouldn't have the same impact even if it, you it's had okay. watched I, it when think, you were younger. But Yeah, I'm, I'm still fairly emotional. I'm a sucker for a really well-crafted thriller. Yeah. Is, is it a romantic no. thriller? It's a saucy thriller? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's even a thriller. Okay, then I, I'm not really interested. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be way the, the more pre- deception. The than, premise than of the movie is just that, not boning. Is by that Sarah he's Michelle trying? They, yeah. So Ryan Philippe and and Sarah Michelle Geller have a bet that he can get Reese Witherspoon to sleep with him mm. because she's like a virgin, like you know, yeah. wait until marriage, and so. Of course, in the in the process of trying to bone her, he and falls see, like, in love with her. Okay, and you got to stop right there because right off the bat, I can't take that premise seriously because that's the backbone of not another teen movie. Oh. They just literally lifted that, and yeah. then they they mixed pretty much every teen movie, including she's all that, and they just kind of wove it oh. into that same storyline. Yeah. And I think that's why I appreciate it because they just worked in. All of those gags and all of those movies into one. Mm-hmm. They did a really good job, but mm-hmm. I can't take the premise seriously. No, yeah. It's, it's the parody's ruined it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was worth it. I mean, but it just reminds me of how just being a fucking teenager and just being a sucker for that kind of entertainment mm-hmm. is just, it doesn't go away. That's the thing is like, I'm kind of blushing because just thinking about some of the jokes in that movie where I'm like, oh God, I shouldn't be laughing at that. But I'm like, chuckling somewhere in the back of my mind like i did when i was 15 mm-hmm. like it doesn't go away so yeah. that's where i'm looking at this from and right i now. do and i do think that there is a level of like you watched it in a really important point in your life yeah whether it's not another teen movie or cruel intentions yeah and when you try to watch those movies if you like for instance if you didn't see that movie when you mm-hmm. were 15 and you tried to watch it when you're 30 yeah. it is not going to have the same it's impact not, yeah it really it like really i tr- like for instance i tried to watch 10 things i hate about you Way after the fact, it was. I was I like, I think we watched it together. Didn't yeah, we? I was like, I don't know, twenty five, okay, late college, maybe. Yeah, and I was just like, this is dumb. <laughs> I don't give a shit about Julia Stiles or Heath Ledger at this point and his <laughs> gross haircut. I just, I had no stake in it. Yeah, yeah. And like, I don't give a fuck if Taming of the Shrew is new and in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, like, I ain't gonna watch it. Yeah, so I don't know. Cruel Intentions has a place in my heart because I watched it at a very, like, a formative point in my life. (laughs) And on that note, not another teen movie has a special place in my heart in lieu of Cruel Intentions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So what do you think? Are we going to think to throwbacks? Think to... Not think. Do we want to talk more about the actual music or do we just want to... Leave it at that. I don't know how how much episode do we do we have. I'm really <laughs> curious what, how far we've gotten. We need on this a, shit. we need a producer so that we can yell at them and go, "What are we at?" Like Bobby Lee, he's always yelling at Gilbert about what time what time they're at. <laughs> 
Well, overall, I, I think it's just a good introduction because looking at a, at a playlist like that mm -hmm. really reminds you of, of how impressionable you were at that time. Yeah. And again, that emotional recall of, of the time period mm -hmm. was so strong with me that there were moments where I really kind of, I don't, I locked up a little bit just mm -hmm. going like, God, I remember like I had frozen burritos at 3.30 on a weekday when my mom was working mm. and, and, you know, it was just me and my sister at home. And then we're waiting to get our little sister, Pinche Brenda, <laughs> from, <laughs> from, you know, preschool or where, wherever the hell she was. <laughs> I don't care, Brenda. I don't know. She'll have to come on the show and tell us what, the, what her fucking journey is. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But it, it's, you just get a real sense of, of place. In where you were at that time. Mm -hmm. Coming back to time capsules, I, I mean, it's that's the precious element of the kind of of entertainment and stuff that you take in. Like your brain just stores things in such an interesting way that mm -hmm. it's like a little capsule that just pops at the right time and it just reveals all the stuff that you had forgotten. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's why I love music. But it not is, this new music. Not this shit. It has powerful recall power. Yeah. Music does. Yeah. What was the song that stuck out in your mind from that playlist? Do you remember? Because there were some that, that you were like, oh, wow, um, I haven't heard this song in a while. That, sma that um, Smashing Pumpkins song, 1979. Oh, 1979. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, Zombie uh, by the Cranberries. Yeah. Um, and that's a, you don't, you forget how powerful of a song that is. Yeah. Just like, well, and it, it was acoustic too. I'd never heard the acoustic for, uh -huh. oh, okay. A lot of those songs, this is a credit to MTV. A lot of those songs were from Unplugged. Mm -hmm. Those versions, those live yeah. acoustic versions would not exist if it weren't for MTV Unplugged. I love MTV Unplugged. Yeah. I swear to God, that was my favorite show. That and VH1 Storytellers. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that show. It was like, VH1 trying is like, okay, look, we're, we're doing that too. They oh, Storytellers was like an acoustic show? Yeah, it was oh, an acoustic show. And they would that. like, I remember Eric Clapton had one and, and you would take a little bit more time telling stories about the songs. Oh, okay. That's why I just, that's such a, a an important thing for mm -hmm. me. Just like how to take in life and how to sort of imprint on certain, certain bits of entertainment. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just how my brain works, but... What was I going to say? It's probably like why you like that podcast so much. The Song Exploder. Oh, Song Exploder. If you guys haven't heard that, you guys need to check it out. There's some amazing, amazing episodes and really popular music that, that you guys would just appreciate how it was put together. Like, uh, one of the, one of the recordings that I really liked was, uh, from Katie Tunstall. Oh, yeah. Uh, she released Suddenly I See right around the time that we were in college. Mm -hmm. And the way she breaks down that song and, and, it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful, the way she put that track together and what it means to her. Uh, I was really taken by that. And I say that about every episode of that of that podcast. So I highly recommend Song Exploder. Can I tink to that? Yeah. Because it's a beautiful short podcast that you will that you will appreciate. It's about 15 minutes per episode, so you won't miss anything. You can listen to it in the toilet. I mean, if our podcast, if we could, you know, summarize it in 15 minutes, I think that'd be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. We could do five minutes per segment. Mm. Like, like speed our kids asleep. <laughs> Mini-sodes. Yeah. Yeah, that playlist definitely. Brought back memories. Yeah, and if you, if you, if you scroll through the Spotify playlist, it's like, 
you know, early 90s. There's literally a playlist for every decade. Oh, yeah. I was looking at, like, the 2010s, and I was like, yeah. what kind of music is that? See, like, look at look at all the good shit that they have. They have Alanis Morissette, mm. ironic. They have Tori Amos. Um, the only thing I don't like on here is Sinead O'Connor. I was never really into yeah. Sinead O'Connor. But look at Marcy Playground again, the Goo Goo Dolls, Tracy Chapman, Jewel, No Doubt. Yeah. No Doubt was amazing. Yeah, they were big. Okay. Big time. I could just keep naming names of bands, but I think we're going to start doing breakdowns of certain albums or certain songs that really made an impression on us. Yeah. Because that would be a better use of uh, of podcast yeah. time, I suppose. Well, I think the throwback segment is going to incorporate music, movies. Shows, maybe something yeah. that we saw a while back, because we noticed that there was a good reaction for Balto. I know that uh, yeah. a lot of you folks out there were fans of that. So we're gonna we're gonna give the people what they want, and we're gonna give us what we want. We'll revisit those pop the, culture phenomenons. Ah, the glory days, and none of this bullshit that we have now. <laughs> <laughs> those are old old people. Yeah, I think we cursing from the porch. We've officially become old, and we have every right to yell at clouds. Mm. So that's what we're gonna do, just like uh, Grandpa Abe Simpson. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm so ready. So do you want to tink to the 90s? Yeah, let's tink to the 90s. Here we go. Not bad, babe. Yeah, I think that's a good, solid three-tink episode. Yeah. Folks, thank you a bunch for joining us tonight. I think it was a, a great time. And uh, no matter where you are, just go and have fun. And uh, we miss you. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Uh, it really helps us out. We now have an email. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big news. We have an email. It's our kids asleep. O-U-R-K-I-D-S-S-L-E-E-P at gmail.com. No apostrophe. No. no apostrophe. No apostrophe. So if you have any thoughts, thoughts, ideas, recommendations of shows that we should watch and talk about, yeah. let us know. Let us know. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's our kids asleep at gmail.com. No apostrophe. So, um, once you guys do that, go yeah. live your lives. Yeah. We're going to go sleep probably because yeah. we're old, but y'all have a good night. Have a good night, guys. Bye.